Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. Today we're going to be in the second chapter of Genesis, and I, I welcome you as part of this study. Uh, if you were with us for the first chapter, um, this is going to be a continuation of that. And again, a reminder, you know, I'm, I'm not digging into the depths of the academic background here. We're, we're dealing more on a theological and a, a history and a, an emotional type level so that we can grasp hold of what's being said and we can see how it applies to our lives, what's there for us and seek to live in obedience to God by the study of his word. So I welcome you as we move together in this study. If you weren't with us for Genesis chapter one, I encourage you back up, uh, check out Genesis chapter one. It lays a framework of understanding that we'll be building on as we move through the book of Genesis. There's, there's actually a few key points that were there that will become more evident later on. So, um, welcome. It is great to have you as part of this study. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then let's get into the book of Genesis. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for all of creation. We thank you that you have set everything in its place, that you have chosen us. You have created us in your image. You have breathed the very breath of life into us. Father, and you have given us stewardship. Lord, we confess to you, we aren't always good stewards, and we seek your forgiveness in that. And Lord, we ask for your guidance as we seek to live lives of good stewardship, not just of this world that you've blessed us with, but of our own lives that you've blessed us with. Help us to live in ways that honor you and that are a blessing to the world around us. Lord, help us to hear your voice through your word today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I pointed out back in our study of chapter one of Genesis, um, you know, I'm running with the common understanding Genesis and in fact, the first five books of the Torah or the Torah, um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, were written by Moses. Now, of course, there are some exceptions to that, some passages that obviously weren't written by Moses, like the account of his death. I'm pretty sure he didn't write his own death account uh, that was added in to finish out the, the account. But God inspired Moses and in some places literally gave him the words uh, carved in stone to include in these books. And again, go back, listen to chapter one for the framework of all this taking place, the people of Israel coming out into the Sinai desert, out of Egypt, what their background would have been, what the influences on them belief-wise would have been at this point. And now he's laying out, Moses is giving to them, inspired by God, this, this um, really a covenant history of relationship with God. And you may go, covenant, we haven't had anything about a covenant yet. Aha, we're at chapter two now, and we're about to see the first hints of a covenant relationship. 
In fact, we're about to see the foundation of all societal relationships in humanity. And we're going to see it initiated by God in chapter two of Genesis. So join me for this journey and let's take a look at Genesis chapter two, starting in verse one. Chapter two starts out this way, and you may think, well, shouldn't this be part of chapter one? Well, it fits with chapter one, but really it um, seems to be kind of an intro, a setting the stage for chapter two. Chapter one deals with the seventh day of creation, not chapter one, verse one deals with the seventh day of creation. It says, so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Now, let's just be blunt. God was not tired from the six days of creation, okay? In fact, we know from the New Testament, from Jesus flat out saying it, that the Sabbath was given for man, not man for the Sabbath. God did this for humanity, not because he needed to do it. He established a, well, a regimented existence six days for labor, seventh day for rest. And not only that, what does it say in verse three about that seventh day? God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. That term holy there means set apart, dedicated unto God. The uh, the, the Hebrew roots for that um, are, are along the lines of to sanctify. And it, it's, it's a word that means in Hebrew to burn. If you were taking something and you were making it holy, you were sanctifying it, setting it apart for God, you were removing it from your grasp. We'll see some of that as the Israelites move into the, the, the Canaanite areas and conquer the, the promised land later on where God commands them, okay, take all the cattle and everything else and and take it out here and burn it. And they're like, well, well, why? Because you're, you're sanctifying, you're setting it apart for me. You're removing it from your own grasp and declaring it as belonging to God. Here God takes the seventh day and he declares it holy. Uh, He had declared everything else good up until this point. He hadn't declared anything holy. But he is setting apart the holy. But there is something else. Not just creation. And why? Because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. And this became a framework for the Israelites moving forward in understanding the the pacing of their weeks, but also in understanding the Sabbath. And I know as a as a New Testament believer and as a uh, well a modern Baptist because what I am, um, you know, yeah, we practice our sabbath if you will as the lord's day we do it on sunday you may go well isn't it biblically on saturday well old testament yes it is on saturday Uh, it is sundown friday night to sundown saturday night 
but going with the idea of the principle of the Sabbath, we've moved it to Sunday and celebrated as the Resurrection Day, Lord's Day, as as we call it. So that's kind of the shift there. Am, am I legalistic about that? No. If you want to celebrate your Sabbath on a Saturday, knock yourself out. If you want to do it on Sunday, great. Um, but I, I don't think that's a hill to die on necessarily. The point is God established a day for rest, a day of Sabbath. And we need to make a practice of that to where it's not just another ordinary day. And you may say, but, but Scott, this is the modern world. My job expects me to work on Sundays or on Saturdays, or I get it. I can remember, you know, I grew up in South Texas and I can remember the days when we had blue laws and some of you may not know what blue laws are, but there was a period of time, at least in Texas, where on Sundays you could not, well, a lot of stores were closed, you know, like department stores and stuff. They were all just flat out closed grocery stores. You could still buy food, but anything that wasn't food, those aisles were roped off. And you could not buy those items on a Sunday because that was a day set apart. So it just wasn't allowed to happen. Now, as far as I know, those laws don't exist anywhere anymore. But the principles behind them weren't all that bad. In fact, they were a great reminder, a help to believers that, hey, today is different and it's set apart for the Lord. And it's set apart for us to rest and for us to worship the one who created all that is. So that's verses one through three. But God set it apart and made it holy. See there, he, he recounts the creation. So the creation of heaven and earth, everything that was in him was completed. On the seventh day, he finished his work of cre- had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Now, moving into verse four, we get into the core of the account in um, the second chapter. And this isn't, this isn't a second creation account. It is a retelling of part of the creation account from a more theological and historical standpoint, um, less of the big, broad, overarching, sweeping statements, uh, less of the contrast with the creation myths from the pagan cultures around them that they would have known and been influenced by, and more, hey, this is the personal aspect. This is that relational aspect between God and humanity. In fact, it is at this point in chapter two and the subsequent verses where references to God actually change. They're not just Elohim, the, the creator God, but they are a, a creator and provider God. They are uh, Elohim and Yahweh. And so that begins to shape the account. And some people want to look at that and go, well, so it's referring to a different God here than it was referring to. No, it's expanding the understanding of who God is. The first chapter was about who God is and what God did. The second chapter is about who God is and what his relationship with us is. 
Genesis is a very relational book. It is about the relationship between God and his creation, specifically the pinnacle of that creation, humanity. So verse four, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth, for the Lord had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there was no people to cultivate the soil, or there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, there's a lot going on there, but I want to point out just a few things. One, um, this connection to the, to the earth, and I don't mean the planet, I mean the stuff, to the dirt. We have a profound connection to the dirt. We were formed from it. And when we die, our bodies return to it. But there's something else because we are not just mud men. We're not just dirt. Because it says, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. God didn't just speak us into existence. He formed us. He, if you will, got his hands dirty, making us. And then he did something that he didn't do with any other part of creation. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostril. The Hebrew word there for breath is the ruah, the very breath of God into us, giving us life. And the man became a living person. And there's a little Hebrew word play going on here. The dust of the ground, the dirt is Adame. And the Hebrew word for man is Adam. little reminder where we came from there. And it's the breath of God that makes us different from the dirt and different from all the rest of creation, not merely spoken into existence, but formed and life breathed into us. Folks, humanity is not just part of creation. God set us apart, distinct and different from the rest of creation. He did it for a purpose, and he did it on purpose. Now we're going to look at some more of his creation. As we move into verse 8, it says, Then the Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east. Now, it is the garden of Eden. Eden isn't the garden. Okay, Eden is in the east. The garden is in Eden. Do we know where Eden is? No. Have people been guessing for thousands of years? Yes. Are they all wrong? Have no idea. It doesn't matter. Then the Lord God planted the garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. 
The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. By the way, those three things are key elements of Hebrew worship. The breastplate of the high priest and many of the things used in the temple involved gold and black onyx, and resin was was burned as an aromatic um, in worship rituals in the temple. Verse 13, the second branch called the Gihon flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch called the Tigris flowed east of the land of Asher. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. And you may go, wait, wait, I've heard of the Tigris and Euphrates. That's, that's Babylon, right? Um, yeah, the Euphrates flows through there. Tigris flows through that area too. We have no idea about the other two. If the land of Cush refers to Ethiopia, which it did later on in history, then maybe we're talking about the Nile there. And the other one, we don't have a clue. Although all of this would have been pre-flood, so we're probably wrong anyway. I kind of think global flood would have um, messed up the flow of rivers just a bit. But the point isn't where Eden was. The point is what the garden in Eden was and what it was about. Now, in verse 14, moving into 15, we have a change in the relationship between God and humanity. Because I would argue that prior to verse 15, there was no sin. Anybody, well, man hadn't sinned yet. Yeah, but there was no possibility of sin because God had made no command. Sin is a violation of the will of God or violation of the will and I would argue the character and nature of God. Um, God had made no command, but he wasn't done with the whole process yet. Let's get to verse 15. It says, the Lord God placed man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. And we go, okay, wait, God wants us to be ignorant? No, God wants us to look to him as the source of, of our moral knowledge. He wants us to look to him as the source of wisdom, not to try to grasp it for ourselves. And to eat of that tree, seeking that knowledge of good and evil, is humanity trying to grasp that wisdom, that knowledge for himself, and it's not ours to have. What we wind up with is something twisted and broken. 
And in grasping for that, we separate ourselves from God. As John says over in chapter one of his gospel, the source, the light, the source of life. We separate ourselves from it. So you are sure to die. Yes, your spiritual relationship with God is broken and dead at that point, And you will physically die at that point. Well, at some future point. Because you are separated from God. This is a big deal. Now, he planted... A couple of specific trees he mentions in the garden, didn't he? Hey, wasn't there another tree? Back there in the middle of the garden, verse 9, in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, humanity had free access to the tree of life. And out of all of creation, there's one tree. And God said, don't eat from that one. Now there's opportunity for sin. Now it is possible for humanity to be in disobedience to God. Can you guess where this is going? Yeah. Well, in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. Ah, Now see, chapter one, we have God speaking them into existence. Here we have God looping man into the process, showing man's dominion over all the creatures because he allows man to name all the creatures. And there is significance in the authority to issue a name. Man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. Now let's hit pause there. We're at the end of verse 20. Here's God, and he's going through this whole thing of of bringing all of the created creatures past Adam so that Adam could name them and see if there's a suitable helper there. Let's be clear. God was not looking for a suitable helper for Adam in this process. God knew that none of those created creatures would be a suitable helper. And by helper, I mean complement, helpmate, other half. We'll, We'll get into that a little more in a moment. None of them would complete him. I know, yeah, the dog, it was man's best friend. And, and, you know... Sometimes we need something to boss us around. So the cat, you know, whatever. Still not enough. Not good enough. God knew that from the get-go. He knew what he had planned to do. We saw it explained back in chapter one. But here we're seeing it more from Adam's perspective. And Adam needed to understand that in all of creation, none of it was adequate. He was given dominion over it. But none of it was adequate. 
In fact, in reference to this whole process back in 18, it's the first time that God said it is not good. Remember creation, everything was good up until creation of humanity and then everything was very good. And then he's saying it's not good. What's not good? It's not good for man to be alone. So this parade goes past Adam. He's naming everything uh, figurative parade. I don't know that it was a literal parading past him. And then we get to verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Uh, literally, it says something to the effect of took part of his side. Okay. Um, the significance there isn't the anatomy lesson. It isn't God did surgery. No, none of that's the significant part. The significant part is the helper that God was going to make for man was equal and of man was part of Adam. There is a link there that is not deniable. And from the standpoint of God is very intentional because there's all of creation out there that is other. And then there is the one next to you that is part of you. And there's a relational aspect there that goes beyond all the rest of it. But it goes on, while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and he closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Because she is connected, because she is part of who I am. And yet she's her. I mean, that is a piece of Hebrew poetry there in verse 23. After the man exclaims, after Adam, we'll call him Mr. Dirt, I don't know, um, exclaims, at last, he breaks out in poetry. This one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You may go, that, that doesn't sound like poetry, Scott. Well, it doesn't to us, but it's Hebrew poetry. Um, she will be called woman because she was taken from man. Now that's translation, but um, what is it? Isha is woman in Hebrew because ish can be man. So Isha is from man. It's yeah. There's a, a deep connection there that doesn't exist in any other relationship between Adam and all of creation. Now, verse 24 kind of rounds things out as we move 24 and 25. We're given this background in 24. It is background that the Apostle Paul gives to us again over in Ephesians and helps us understand a little more of what it means, but it is profoundly important that we don't miss this. Verse 24 of Genesis 2 says this, this explains 
what explains the whole this is bone of my bone flesh of my flesh shall be called woman for she was taken out of man she is that helpmate that god designed that god crafted to be the right complement for man because it's not good for him to be alone so i will make him a helper who is just right for him out of that context that explains why a man leaves his mother mother and father let me get this right i can't read this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one other other translations will refer to that as and the two shall become one and let me just be blunt that's not a euphemism for sex that is a description of genuine intimacy it does involve some physical intimacy but it involves so much more than that it is two lives in covenant relationship with each other being joined together and pulling the same direction it is a husband and wife who now form a new family unit because right here we have God establishing the first social order in creation, the family, a husband and a wife. How can you call them husband and wife? There was no marriage ceremony. Okay. There were only two of them. Okay. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his, what was that word again? Oh yeah, wife. And the two are united into one. The Apostle Paul talks about that. In fact, he expands it out and he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm not talking about husband and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is a covenant relationship between two individuals created to be in relationship with each other. And even the Apostle Paul looks at it and goes, hey, you know what that's talking about? That is an illustration, a living illustration set in front of all of creation of the relationship between Jesus and his church, between Christ and his bride, that they become one. And what's really crazy about that, and hang with me on this, what's really crazy about that is when we are invited into that relationship to become one with Christ, we are invited into the relationship that is the Trinity. We are invited into relationship with God. What an invitation. And the idea that when we find that other person, when we find that person of the opposite sex that God has designed for us, and we 
do the work to become one. It not only is a blessing in our lives, but it blesses those around us because it is a witness to the work of Christ. It points others to what Christ has done and is doing. This is the first social construct that God created, that God established and ordained. And you may say, man, you're reading a whole lot into one verse here. No, not really. Where it's unpacked elsewhere and just its context, this is huge. And our world wants to twist it. It does. Because it doesn't like it. Because it wants to have its own view of wisdom and knowledge. And not... And not follow God's commands and God's wisdom and knowledge that he imparts to us. But the reality is he made male and female and just the two. And he designed us for each other to be united as a husband and wife. Now there are some, Paul makes it abundantly clear in the New Testament. There are some who have the gift of celibacy, some who, who God has given the gift of singleness to, and they, God has given them fulfillment and purpose in being them without that helper. But speaking as somebody that's been married 30 years, some of us need the helper. And it's a wild ride, and we don't always get it perfectly. But it is such a blessing to be united to our spouse and for the two to be united into one. Our world, again, doesn't like that. It wants all sorts of other things. And God gives it the freedom to pursue all those other things. But it doesn't change the reality of our creation. So again, in verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Then verse 25, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. You see, there's... Yeah, I'm, I'm from Texas. I, I know some of you are going, wow, I couldn't tell. But um, kind of growing up in Texas, there, there's we have different ways of saying things. This word naked. There's the word naked. And then maybe you've heard somebody from the South say naked before. Those are different words. I, they may look the same in print, but they're completely different words. Naked means you have no clothes on. But there's no hint of shame. It's just a statement. You you don't have, you're undressed. You're in a state of undress. Um, it says, now the man and his wife were both naked. There was nothing between them. But they felt no shame. Shame isn't just embarrassment. Shame has a guilt component to it. They were not guilty 
I don't mean feeling guilty. They were guilty of no sin being naked. They, they were just without clothes and it didn't matter. Now, later on, they realize that they are naked and that's a whole nother story, which is in chapter three and we'll get there. But here they were in a right relationship with each other, the relationship they were created to have. And even though there weren't clothes involved, it wasn't a problem because there was no shame. They knew each other. They trusted each other. They were open to each other. And that reflects the relationship God desires us to have with him. To know him and be known by him. To be united to him in Christ. And folks, even in Genesis, that's what it's about. That's where all of this is headed. And we're going to start seeing glimpses of it along the way. Oh, you might call it prophecies. But there's points along the way where this all begins to direct towards, in fact, from the New Testament, even into the book of Revelation, we understand that tree of life isn't just a tree. We come to understand that that was symbolic of someone, that someone being Jesus, who brings us life. And that's God's invitation to us, even here in the second chapter of Genesis, to know him, to turn to him in Christ and to receive life, the life we were created to have in relationship with our creator and our God. Do you have that relationship? If you don't, I want to encourage you today, take a step of faith. Turn to God in prayer. Confess to him that you're a sinner, that you have sinned against God. You know you have. So is he. But get it out there. And then ask him to forgive you for all of your sin. His promise is that he will and he does. In fact, he makes you clean and he calls you his own. And then live out that relationship. Live a life following him. And get connected with other believers that are doing the same. It will change everything because it's a step towards who you were created to be in relationship with the one who created you. Turn to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for we thank you for your intent, your desire to create us and to create us for relationship with you. And Father, that you did not set us on this path to go through the world alone, but you designed this life to be lived together. That you give us helpers, partners, compliments in this journey through life as you establish the family, as you created both genders, 
to reflect your nature and character. You said, let us create them in our image, male and female. He created them. So, Father, we know when we look on one another, we are seeing part of the wonder of God being reflected in his creation. Lord, help us to never lose the awe of that wonder. Again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.